This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headlines, a joint resolution passes in the House. It aims to block a D.C. law that would allow illegal immigrants and foreign agents to vote in local elections. Hear more about the resolution introduced by Representative James Comer. The House votes unanimously to condemn the CCP's use of a spy balloon over the U.S. Recovered equipment directly contradicts the Chinese regime's claim of it being a weather balloon. And we hear from senators after their briefing. EU leaders are toughening up on border security. The increasing numbers of illegal immigrants have forced the EU block into action. We have more on their proposal. We speak to a best-selling author about his new book on President Abraham Lincoln. We found out why he chose Lincoln as his main character and what it is he wants people to know about the president. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Friday, February 10th. And we're starting off today's program with some news from the Capitol. The House passed a joint resolution yesterday to block a D.C. law that gives non-citizens the right to vote. The law would allow illegal immigrants and foreign employees at embassies who are openly hostile to the U.S. to take part in local elections. The resolution was introduced by Republican Representative James Comer. Here's what he had to say before the vote. Our nation's capital city plays host to hundreds of foreign organizations and embassies. Many of these foreign nationals have interests directly opposed to those of the United States. They make no claim otherwise. For years, my Democrat colleagues have decried potential foreign influence in our electoral process. But D.C.'s new law potentially allows foreign agents from China, Russia, and other adversaries to participate in local elections held within this nation's capital city. Local officials had urged members of Congress not to get involved in city matters. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said it, it was Congress's responsibility to intervene. He said the act from the Washington Council would dilute the vote of American citizens and endanger city residents and businesses. Over 40 Democrats voted in favor of the resolution. It's the first time in eight years that the chamber has voted to cancel local measures. Senator Tom Cotton will introduce a version of the resolution in the Senate. President Biden will need to sign off if it passes to prevent the D.C. law from taking effect. The House also passed a resolution yesterday to overturn a D.C. law that would rewrite the city's criminal code. It would reduce criminal penalties. Over 30 House Democrats voted in support. New information is out on the capabilities of the Chinese spy balloon that hovered over the U.S., Senior administration officials from the White House briefed senators on the issue yesterday. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. New details emerging on the CCP's spy balloon, uncovering the first proof that it was indeed on an espionage mission because it did contain devices meant to intercept sensitive communications. A State Department official speaking anonymously to the Epoch Times said that it had multiple antennas to include an array likely capable of collecting and geolocating communications. It was also equipped with solar panels large enough to produce enough power to operate multiple active intelligence collection sensors.
others. The Chinese regime is now accusing the U.S. of engaging in information warfare against China because these new discoveries directly contradict the previous claim by China that this was a weather balloon. Senators did receive a closed-door briefing by White House officials on the issue, and after that briefing, I asked many senators what is their current level, their current assessment of the level of threat that this balloon posed, and we got mixed reactions. Here's a look. Whether there was a threat or not, and I don't believe there was a threat, there wasn't. I also think there was a real threat to civil aviation. If not, why did the FAA issue ground stoppages? There are airplanes in parts of the country that couldn't fly for a defined period of time. Even what I am saying, they didn't send it over here by accident. Number one takeaway is that the Chinese Communist Party on issues like this, they don't tell the truth, right? They lie. I think the balloon presented a very low level threat. In the aftermath of this story, we can maybe talk about um, the real threats uh, posed to the United States uh, by uh, China. Other activities like what? Well, like their propaganda efforts, like the amount of fentanyl that's being sent from China into the United States. This is believed to be just a part of the communist regime's fleet of balloons that has been in operation for several years, traveling across at least 40 countries. I asked a few senators how they believe Western countries should respond now. Here's what they told me. Uh, we need to come together and recognize that there is really clear and present danger, increasingly so. They are a persistent threat. My question really is, why we are so late to the game. The entire civilized world should recognize that communist China is probably the gravest threat we've ever faced, more severe than Soviet Russia was. So we should take every step we can to try to reduce our dependency on China, to try to build stronger military deterrence against them, and make it clear that we are going to defend freedom in the civilized world. The House, on a vote of 419 to 0, decried this act by the CCP as a brazen violation of U.S. sovereignty. And while both parties have disagreements about whether or not the administration handled this specific issue appropriately, there is more of a broad, uh, there is more of a bipartisan consensus about the need for the U.S. to counter China more broadly. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And moving on, we have some updates from the earthquake. Emergency crews made a series of dramatic rescues in Turkey today. Several people were pulled from the rubble four days after the catastrophic earthquake killed more than 20,000 people. Despite fears that it may be too late, hopes are still high that more will be found. Here's Entity's Cost Jimenez. The search for survivors goes on in Turkey and Syria. It's been four days since the tragic earthquake that's claimed over 20,000 lives. Dramatic footage provided by the White Helmets shows volunteers rescuing two young girls from a collapsed structure in Jandaris. Rescuers broke into cheers after saving a child from the rubble in the Turkish city of Karamanaras. On Wednesday, the Israeli army rescue team pulled a two-year-old baby out alive from under the rubble in the same city. Video shows rescuers pulling a 12-year-old boy from debris and carrying him before putting him on a stretcher. The rescue of survivors lifted the spirits of weary search crews as hopes were fading that more would be found alive. A little boy smiled as rescuers pulled him out from the rubble of a collapsed building along with other members of his family. 
Rescue efforts continue despite the 72-hour rule. Israeli rescue and medical teams say they have rescued 10 civilians in Turkey. This video shows a rescuer in tears after a girl was pulled from a collapsed building. In Azmarin, a village near the Syrian city of Idlib, volunteers rescued a young child. A visibly scared dog was saved in Turkey's Ishkenderun. The number of those injured in both countries now stands at more than 60,000. Authorities say more than 6,000 buildings have collapsed in Turkey. Countless more were damaged. The quake zone is home to more than 10 million people. The number of those who've perished has now exceeded the death toll of Turkey's 1999 earthquake, which killed around 18,000 people. Kostem NS, NTD News. EU President Ursula von der Leyen said today a consensus was reached on border security. EU leaders agreed to tighten their borders to keep away unwanted immigrants. Illegal immigration has been a highly sensitive topic in the EU since 2015. A massive wave of over a million people flooded the continent at that time. Some were fleeing the war in Syria, others left Africa in search of greener pastures. Member states fought bitterly over how to provide for them. The EU imposed mandatory refugee quotas, but Hungary, Poland and the Czech Republic rejected the quotas. Unable to agree, the bloc of 450 million people has turned to tightening its borders. I think uh, it is very important that the European Council has clearly recognized that migration is a European challenge that requires a European response. Borders must be managed. We will act to strengthen our external borders and prevent irregular migration. Now, von der Leyen outlined concrete border plans, including watchtowers and electronic surveillance. She also mentioned that return decisions made in one member state will be valid in all member states. In related news, passport stamps could be on the way out for EU visitors. A new automated entry and exit system is set to launch in November. It will register travelers digitally. Now, back in the States, conservative commentator Matt Walsh testified before Tennessee lawmakers this week. He spoke in support of a bill to ban gender reassignment surgeries for minors. And today's Daniel Monahan has more. The bill has moved quickly through both chambers, and a full vote could happen as early as next week. The legislation was proposed after last fall's controversy over Vanderbilt University Medical Center. The institute was providing gender reassignment treatments to teenagers. Conservatives alleged Vanderbilt pushed the treatments as a money-making scheme. It was Matt Walsh who first exposed the hospital's programs in a series of tweets in late September. Just curious of your definition of, of if you feel like people are adults at 16 should... Well, people uh, are adults is, at 18, uh, but actually your, your brain is not fully developed until you're 25. So we should be having a conversation about whether we should even be doing these surgeries to people at 18. Walsh called performing such medical surgeries before someone is 18, quote, absurd. Do you, do you think that a 16-year-old can meaningfully consent to having their body parts removed? Do, do you? No? State Representative John Ray Clemens asked Walsh about his educational background. Well, my Who's background Walsh? that qualifies me to speak to this is that I'm a human being with a brain and common sense and I have a soul and so, therefore, I think it's a really bad idea to chemically castrate children. That is my experience. 
Meanwhile, a former case manager at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital, Jamie Reed, says what is happening to children there is morally and medically appalling. Reed resigned in November after four years. She says she was struck by the lack of formal protocols for treatment. One of her jobs was to do intake for new patients and their families. She says sometimes clusters of girls arrived from the same high school, and many had multiple comorbidities such as depression, anxiety, ADHD, and eating disorders. Many were also diagnosed with autism. For transitioning, she says patients needed a letter of support from a therapist, usually one the hospital recommended. They only had to see the therapist once for the green light. The next step was a single visit to the endocrinologist for a testosterone prescription, and that's all it took. Reed says patients were told about some side effects, including sterility, but she now believes that teenagers are simply not capable of fully grasping what it means to make the decision to become infertile while still a minor. The hospital's website says not receiving support that upholds their gender identity puts the physical and mental health of kids at risk. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And coming up, we speak to a best-selling author about his new book on President Abraham Lincoln. We find out why he chose Lincoln as his main character and what it is he wants people to know about the president after the break. Welcome back. Did you know it's President Abraham Lincoln's birthday on Sunday? The president has inspired many movies and books, and New York Times bestselling author John Cribb was so inspired by him that he came out with two books about him. After years of research, I asked him why he chose Lincoln as his main character and what it is he wants people to know about the president. Take a look. Yeah, I tried very hard and spent a long time researching his life and times to really make this an accurate portrayal of Lincoln's life and times. So, you know, he's not chasing zombies or killing vampires or anything like this in these uh, historical novels. This is, I think, the real uh, Lincoln. And uh, The Rail Splitter, which is the one that's just come out, starts him off as a teenager on the Indiana frontier. And there's a chap there's a date at the, the top of each chapter to let you know what's what's happening. And so you're you're with him every page as he, you know, kind of makes his way from the woods of Indiana to the prairies of Illinois and then the threshold of the, the White House and then in, in the old day with him for the last five years of his life. But this is the real Lincoln uh, in these two books. And I used, uh, you know, as much as I could, I used uh, primary source documents to build uh, the dialogue and the, the descriptions of scenes to, to make it accurate. First, let's delve into a little bit more into his character. So you said that you uh, really tried to bring his character to life. So tell me more about what kind of, of a man you think he was? You know, how did you portray him in your book? Yeah. You know, he, of course, he was a human being. He was flawed like all of us, but I think was really a, a, a great man. And I think that he um, possessed and acquired, as he was growing up on the frontier, a set of virtues in his character, uh, like perseverance and hard work and uh, a burning eagerness to learn. Uh, you know, virtues like that that really propelled him to the White House and in the end made him the great president and leader that, that he was. Uh, he, when he got to the White House and was, became president, the Civil War broke out right away. And um, listen, as that war dragged on and got worse and worse and bloodier and bloodier, there were many times when people in the North said to him, 
just stop. This isn't worth it. Uh, all this death and bloodshed. Let the South go. Let them have their slaves. Let them have their own country. And Lincoln said, no, we're going to hold this this nation together. He used to tell people when he was president, he said, I'm, I'm like a man trying to keep a tent up in a storm. And he said, I get the tent all staked down to the ground. And the storm comes along and the wind blows out one of the tent stakes. And I grab a hammer and I peg it back into the ground. And as soon as I get it in and the tent back up, the wind blows out another tent stake. So I ran, run around to the other side of the tent and I, I peg it back down. And then it blows out another tent stake and I peg it back down. And he told people, that's all I do all day long is I keep pegging away, pegging away. And he said, that's what I mean to keep doing, pegging away. So he, he really is a model of uh, perseverance. Yeah, and um, when we would compare his personality, let's say, in your newest book, which plays out before his presidency, as you say, and versus his personality during the last five years of his life, how were they different? Well, I tell you, one really fascinating thing to watch uh, in that during that journey he makes from a log cabin uh, to the White House is that Lincoln uh, starts out as a young fellow like, you know, like all of us, I guess, the, the questions he's asking himself are, you know, how am I going to make my way in life? How am I going to get off the farm? Because he really did not want to be a farmer. Um, where am I going to live? Uh, how am I going to get a girl? Who am I going to marry? Those kind of questions. Uh, which are important questions for all of us to ask and answer. But as he as he grows, we gradually see him uh, finding and attaching himself to a cause that is greater than himself. Uh, and that, of course, turns out to be the cause of, of liberty and, and the cause of, of country, a uh, cause that he ultimately gives his life for. And watching this, you know, very driven, but at times very callow uh, and, and sometimes directionless young person uh, gradually find uh, something larger than the self and attach himself to that, I think is, is also a great lesson for, uh, for all of us. I mean, there are a lot of small things that surprised me, like, you know, twice when Lincoln was a young fella living out on the frontier, he and buddies built flatboats and loaded them with frontier produce and floated all the way down the Mississippi River uh, to New Orleans to sell them. And on one of those trips, he was attacked by river pirates. I mean, just lots of fun things like that. But I think, on a, in a larger sense, that the thing that really surprised me was that once he got into the White House and was president and plunged into that awful war, what a man of, of deep faith uh, he became. He really, uh, he turned to the Bible a lot, tried to spend time with it every day, and uh, pondering, uh, you know, looking for answers to questions in the Bible and asking again and again, what is God's will? And I think his, his faith in the end um, ends up supplying a lot of the strength that he needs to make it through that awful war and gives him a lot of the wisdom that he needed to be such a great president. Hmm. And how does it play into today? I mean, why is it important to you to bring more attention to, to you know, this part of history, to him as a person, the values and the, and the wisdom, as you say? Yeah, you know, I think he is such an inspiring story. And generations of Americans have been inspired by Lincoln and his story. And I, I don't want us to lose that. And that, that journey that he made from the log cabin to the White House that I tell in The Rail Splitter is such a remarkable journey. It is, in a lot of ways, the story of the American dream. Um, I worry that today, sometimes young people aren't getting that message. You know, I, I worry that sometimes they're, they're hitting, hearing too much negativity. They're hearing messages that you know, the American dream is is dead or it isn't what it used to be or it was a phony, you know, it was it was never around or 
that you know the system's rigged against you or you're you're a victim and these messages are not helpful they hold people back i think i think we need more inspiration uh to lead us forward and and lincoln's story really is an amazingly inspiring story hmm. well thank you so much john Cripp, for your time today uh great books about a great man i appreciate it thank you so much for having me on and coming up, as the Super Bowl approaches, players are not the only ones preparing. We take a look at what the medical response team does to get ready for the expected or unexpected. And a dog born in a tiny village in central Portugal has taken the record of the world's oldest dog. We take a closer look after the break. Good to have you back with us. As the Super Bowl nears, players are preparing to give it their best, but they're not the only ones who need to be ready. Football injuries are common, so the NFL's medical team is on standby to deal with sudden illness and injuries. Entity's Kost Temenes tells us more about the medical response team's toolkit. This Sunday's Super Bowl game in Glendale, Arizona will feature the battle between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. But despite being the highlight of many players' careers, for NFL medical officials, it's just like every other game. We prepare for it and plan for it just like we do every single game. And, and really, every week and every game is our Super Bowl. By that, I mean we have to be prepared for a catastrophic event or illness. And if that occurs, we have to function at the highest level. The medical team has put in place a number of measures on and off the field. The blue tent is the sideline concussion examination space. Uh, this tent is mandatory for all of our sideline concussion evaluations. Sometimes it's used for other evaluations, like they might come in here to do an orthopedic exam or some other exam. Concussions jumped by nearly 20% during the 2022 regular season. A concussion suffered by a Miami Dolphins quarterback last year prompted the NFL and Players Union to adopt enhanced concussion protocols. Alongside the concussion tent, the medical team has access to a sideline video replay system. It helps demonstrate injuries to the sideline medical staff of both teams. In addition, there's also a spotter booth. Um, we have 69 field-facing camera views that we have to choose from. Now, we don't look through all 69 during a game, but there's usually four or five views that are going to give us the best view and, and best angle to see certain things. Referees can be notified by a medical timeout button should any players display injury behavior. Off the field, a room is on reserve for what's called the 60-minute meeting. In the pre-game meeting, medical officials and independent medical personnel gather to discuss players' health and identify each person's role in an emergency, allowing for better overall coordination and communication. Cost MNS, NTD News. And now we're going to meet the world's oldest dog on record. The purebred Portuguese Mastiff named Bobby is almost 31 years old. The dog was born in a tiny village in central Portugal. And thanks to him, the remote village is now on the map. Bobby has broken the Guinness World Record for being the oldest dog. He celebrated his 30th birthday last year. The previous record was held by an Australian cattle dog for almost a century. He died at the age of 29 years old in 1939. Although Bobby still loves walks, age is taking its toll. The dog is less adventurous, its fur is thinning, 
Its eyesight has worsened and it needs to rest more than it used to. Bobby's breed usually has a life expectancy of 12 to 14 years. Owner Leonel Costa attributed the dog's longevity to a number of factors. And that includes living in a calm countryside and never having been chained up or kept on a leash. Of course, our love and affection throughout his life has also helped, but he is the builder of this deed. Oh, you know, Evelyn, I guess all that freedom really did him some good. And, you know, a 30-year-old dog, that's the first time I've heard of that. For sure, yeah. And Bobby actually has a really touching story. The Guinness World Records called his story miraculous. At the time Bobby was born, Costa's family had many animals and just little money. So Costa was only eight at the time. His father was a hunter, and generally he tended to buried the, the newborn puppies instead of keeping them, but Bobby hid among a pile of firewood. And Costa and his siblings found him a few days later, and of course they kept it a secret just until the puppy opened its eyes. Ah, oh, what an interesting story. I know, right? Yeah. All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you. You can share your thoughts and your story at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.